Welcome to the Aroma of Christ podcast, brothers and sisters in Christ. I am Ryan Brown, the pastor of the Fostoria Baptist Church, and the hope behind this podcast is to do nothing in any way to replace regular gathering among God's people. It is for the sake of mutual encouragement of one another through the singing and preaching ministry that we gather. But if you do happen to miss a week and want to keep up in Matthew, or if you want to re-listen to a sermon because it was particularly impactful or particularly confusing, this podcast is available to you. And so we continue on the Aroma of Christ sermons from the pulpit of Fostoria Baptist Church. Our scripture reading for this week is Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is paired with Psalm 1 at the beginning of the book of Psalms to introduce the main themes of the book. The ones who meditate upon the scripture will become wise and understanding of the king of Psalm 2. The king of Psalm 2 is said to have been begotten by Yahweh and is rightfully understood as being worshipped and served And indeed, it is in refuge of the sun that one becomes safe, that one becomes safe from his own wrath. That then continues to have this idea then of a messianic king who is treated rightfully as Lord that saves the people. So Psalm 2 As we read, pay attention to the shifts in speakers. It's not all coming straightforwardly. There's a narrative that's almost being told as one person speaks and then another. It begins like this. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. Yet... Have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion? I will declare the decree. The Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten of thee. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron, thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings. Be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and ye perish from the way, when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. You can go ahead and turn to Matthew 16, verses 13 through 20. We've been building up to this passage since mid-September. 
really looking at various identifications of Jesus. And it started with some not so good ones. He's just the carpenter's son. Or he's John the Baptist raised from the dead. And then there started to be a cycle of uh, great feeding, a dispute with the Pharisees as hostility increases. And then we had one identification, the Canaanite woman saying, this is the son of David. But now we come to the climax of all of those comments, all of those cycles. Someone else makes a more definitive identification of who Jesus is. Now, it is my intention not to try to cover everything that's in verses 13 through 20 today. We'll come back in over the next few weeks and catch some more of the details. But to try to get a little bit more of a broad swath of things that are going on. So don't be surprised when some of the more controversial elements do not get directly discussed here. We will take care of that and discuss it. We're going to get the main idea first. Our text does read in Matthew, start in Matthew 16, verse 13. When Jesus came into the coasts of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Father, we ask you today that you would guide us in this time so that we can appropriately answer that question, not in terms of what men say, but in terms of what we say. Lord, I, I know that this is not a work that I or anyone else here, at least bodily here, can do. As it is not flesh and blood that does this revealing, but you. And so, Lord, we ask that you would work through this time dedicated to studying your word, through this time dedicated to the heralding and preaching of who Jesus is, to reveal to the hearts of believers and unbelievers alike who Jesus is. So that those who trust in Jesus may have firmer hope, firmer confidence in the midst of the uncertainty of life. And that those who have not taken refuge in the Son may today take refuge in your Son and have hope. And so, Lord, work through this time. Continue to guide us and worship to you. And I pray, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. When we are aware and looking around at things that are happening in life, we find that identity is a pretty big deal. There are certain things that are a big deal identity-wise in the current climate, but there's also been identity struggles for at least a long time possibly since the very dawn of time, or maybe more specifically, the fall. We even have it in some of the weighing ways that we talk about in terms of midlife crises. That whole point is people trying to rethink whether their life is going in the right direction according to their identity. 
And I imagine that there are many people right after retirement who struggle because so much of their identity before was, I'm a plumber, I'm an engineer, I'm a doctor. And suddenly it's all I was, those things. But with all of the elements of what identity struggles we might have, the most important thing about identity is to make sure we identify Christ correctly. And indeed, it is in identifying Christ correctly that we would have our identity secure because we would be the ones taking refuge in the Son and being forever in Him adopted Son of God. This passage is all about identification of who Christ is. And we're really going to look at it in three different parts, three different scenes, really three different exchanges of dialogue. And the first is verses 13 to 14. We're like the whole narrative from 1354 to 1620. It starts with the wrong identifications. Jesus says, we read rather in verse 13, when Jesus came into the coasts of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? There, Jesus and his disciples, they've gone in what they had the opportunity to leave the area from the last dispute with the Pharisees. Jesus has taught his disciples. And now they've come into a different place, the coast of Caesarea Philippi. And in that setting, he then asks, what do men say? He's not first asking who the disciples think. He's first going to ask, what do men say about who I, the Son of Man, am? And there seems to be a hint at what the right answer and right identification would be. But it must only be a hint. Even though Son of Man is used in Daniel 7 and is probably has some undertones here of the glorious one who receives a kingdom from the Ancient of Days, if it were more than a hint, the question would be redundant. But it, the question is about the crowds. And so the disciples give that answer. And we read in verse 14, and they said, some say that thou art John the, John the Baptist, some Elias, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Now we've read enough to know that this isn't an exhaustive list. Nothing is mentioned about the Canaanite woman saying that he's the son of David, or the Pharisees saying that he's of the devil. So it appears that the disciples have taken what is the prevailing predominant view and summarized some of those perspectives of what's going on. And their response is that some say you're John the Baptist. And we've read that already. That was Herod's view. In Matthew 14, verse 1 and 2, the scripture tells us, at that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard of the fame of Jesus. 
And he said unto his servants, This is John the Baptist. He is risen from the dead. And therefore, mighty works do show forth themselves in him. And he sees the fact that John the Baptist being risen from the dead would then be a reason why miracles could happen through Jesus. And he starts to give an explanation that this is an important person. Others apparently are saying that Jesus is Elijah. Elijah wouldn't be risen from the dead. He'd simply be returning to the land of the living as he was gathered up in a chariot of fire. But especially given expectation of an Elijah-like prophet coming before the day of the Lord, before the Lord himself comes to his temple, the reality of the fact is Elijah would be significant. As to with Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Because the running theme through all of these is that they're looking at a prophet who's returned to the land of the living. This is actually a fairly high identification of who Jesus is. Because they're not just saying he's a prophet. They're saying that he's a special prophet. One so special that he returned from the land. But regardless, it's not high enough. It's only a foil, because though they are right that he is a special prophet, Jesus himself said that he was a prophet when he said the proverb that a prophet is not without, without honor except in his own household. He is the prophet, not a prophet, and he is more than a prophet. And so then Jesus asks again, in our second exchange of dialogue, the good confession. Jesus' question is simple. He saith unto them, Whom say ye that I am? So now it's not about what men are saying. It's about what the disciples are saying. Whom do ye all say that I am? If we're following through the narrative up to this point, this is a question that brings a moment of great intrigue. It's a lot of expectation built into this simple question. For one, because we're still looking for an exhaustive and definitive answer to another question. A question by the Nazarenes. Turn back with me to Matthew 13. To be right after the parables discourse, Jesus goes back to his hometown of Nazareth and he speaks. And the people are amazed, which is good, but their amazement quickly turns to skepticism and unbelief. And in the middle of verse 54, the scripture says that they say this Whence hath this man this wisdom? And these mighty works. Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And his brother and James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And his sisters, are they not all with us? Whence then hath this man all these things?
Whence comes the wisdom? Whence comes the authority? From where are all these mighty works coming? They know his family. They think they know his father. They just don't understand. We still have no clear semblance, at least from a person within the narrative, as to who and where. So maybe the disciples, when they're asked, because they have the closest company with Jesus, they perhaps know best about who he is supposed to be. But we also have reason to doubt that they would understand properly. Part of the thing that's been developed over the course of the cycles is that the disciples are dull. They're slow to understand, slow to believe. They don't fully believe in regard to the feeding of the 5,000. But we could give them a little bit of a break with that. That hadn't been done by Jesus before. Then Jesus rebukes them in Matthew 14, 31. Because Peter walks on the water but then sees the wind and lacks faith. O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? And if that wasn't enough in the first dispute with the Pharisees, Jesus says something that they don't understand. And when Peter asks for an explanation, Jesus then says, Are ye also yet without understanding? That's Matthew 15, 16. And it continues. They don't see that Jesus will feed the 4,000 just like he fed the 5,000. And after the second dispute with the Pharisees, there's still little faith. They're preoccupied with bread and the fact that they don't have any. So don't understand the words that Jesus is saying. So will they understand now, we have a glimmer of hope in Matthew sixteen twelve. Then understood they how he bade them not beware of the leaven of bread, but of the doctrine of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees. Is that understanding of the proverb of what Jesus said in Matthew sixteen six? Also extending to them understanding much more of who Jesus is. Or are they still slow to understand? There's tension. We don't know what to expect from the disciples. But then we read in verse 16. And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. In regard to the tension of whether they understand, we can have at least a momentary sigh of relief. The fact is, it is still a partial understanding. Jesus will explain in verse 21 that he's going to have to suffer in Jerusalem. And Peter's going to rebuke him, saying, certainly you will not have to suffer. They understand who he is, even if they don't understand what him being the Messiah means.
Peter once more speaks up. Representative of the disciples. He's the one who asked the question to declare the parable. He's the one who had the initiative to walk on the water. Now he stands again as representative of the disciples when they were all asked, whom do you say that I am? He answers and he says, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. Two main points from this confession. Peter, of course, is right. And he says that Jesus is the Christ and that he is the Son of God. He starts then with this term, Christ. I know at times we're so comfortable with the Bible saying Jesus Christ, that we can almost get trapped into thinking Christ is a last name. But at the bottom, we do know it's not a last name. It is a, a title. It's a Greek word that translates the Hebrew word Messiah, Masiach, meaning anointed one. It's a discussion not particularly of just this is just a last name, but a statement of this is the one God has anointed. This is the one that God has chosen to be king and reign. It's a title that gives a functional role of who Jesus is. Now, Matthew has already told us that Jesus is the Messiah. It was actually in the very first part of Matthew, where he says, The book of the generations of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. But what's interesting is when we look up the word Christ in Matthew, we'll find it used six times, five of them in the first two chapters, and all of them on the lips of the narrator. Or in other words, to put it a different way, Peter is the first person within Matthew's gospel to say Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One. Now, obviously, messianic titles have been used. The Canaanite woman, most recently, has said that he was the son of David. The actual term Messiah is first applied to Jesus here. And that is certainly climactic. He's been chosen by God. He's been anointed by God. And not with olive oil, but with the Spirit of God that at his baptism descended on him like a dove and remained. Such that by the Spirit of God, he cast out demons, not as the Pharisees presumed by any demonic work, but by the Holy Spirit who continued to anoint him so that he could teach good news to the poor, so that he could announce, so that he could announce that he was here and ultimately make beauty out of ashes. But Matthew is hinted at something we must also consider. The way to make beauty out of ashes is to deal with the sin that caused the ashes. You can't just announce that the king is here and be done. Jesus came to save his people from their sins, and that is done by his death. Peter doesn't understand that at this point. 
by no means really makes his confession less climactic. But the hope that we have is the hope of verse 21. From that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go into Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. Jesus is the Messiah in the full sense, the one anointed with the Spirit of God, suffering for the nations, where upon him is laid our iniquity, and by his stripes we are healed. If you haven't done so, let today be the day in which you come to Jesus as the one who has suffered for you, who has died for the sins that we all committed, where we deserve to tear the wrath of God, but he has borne it instead. So that he can make beauty for our ashes, beauty for our mourning over our sin. Let's repent of our sin and come to him in faith. Jesus has this functional title that Peter confesses of the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the Savior. But there's also then a title that's more about who he is at bottom, who he is in his being. And that's that he is the son of the living God. Psalm 2.7 Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. Jesus is and always has been God the Son. And there are some who would say that the Son of God here is more just another way of a messianic title, given passages like Psalm 2-7. And that's true, but it's a messianic title precisely because the Messiah was to be ontologically, that is, by being the Son of God. And we have that even in the question that this definitively answers. By whose authority? From where does he get his authority and his mighty works? The Nazarenes doubt where he gets that authority, are skeptical of it, because they think the carpenter is his father. But he's not Joseph's son. He's God's son. He's been begotten by God, in fact, twice. He's been begotten by God before all ages, always the Son of God, always fathered by him eternally. And in time, in his humanity, he's been begotten by God the Holy Spirit. So he is now fully Son of God, truly man, truly God. He is Christ, Messiah, anointed one. And he is, in essence and being, the very Son of God, God the Son in the flesh, God the Son incarnate, 
ready to save his people from their sin. Let us not leave here today without fully understanding the weight of Jesus' identity as confessed by Peter, but particularly in regard to who he is in himself. He's the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah for all nations, for all who will repent and believe. He is the Son of God, always divine, now also human. Condescending to take upon this flesh, cursed by sin as it is, though he himself never sinned. Perfect in every possible way. How amazing and what a savior we have indeed. Christ, the son of the living God. It is important that we think and know all about who he is, partially because we also have a chance of sharing and the blessing that Peter himself gets in verses 17 to 20. The last exchange starts in verse 17. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. The confession that Peter has just made marks him out as a blessed one. And the reason why the confession marks him out as such a blessed one is because it wasn't his own human understanding, his own human intellect, or any human intellect that caused him to make the confession. As the scripture reads, For flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. The confession marks him as blessed precisely because it marks him as one to whom God has revealed. No one can say Jesus is the Christ unless the Spirit of God abides in him. Nor can anyone with the Spirit of God say that Jesus is accursed. This confession he's made is not the invention of any man. As Rich Mullins has a song that says, um, he did not make it, no, it is making him. And so we, by making the confession, I do believe, can also share in this being blessed, being marked as being blessed by God. We also can have the reality of verses 18 to 19. And I say also unto thee, that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. 
Jesus is the one that God has chosen. He is indeed God the Son. He has all the power of divinity, and he'll be killed and raised again on the third day. He already has, at this point, conquered sin, death, the devil, and hell. And that is our only assurance, not just for eternity, but in regard to the here and now. Because it's not us doing the work. Verse 18 again, And I say unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. It's not our church. It's not us doing the building. It's not us choosing a foundation. Jesus chose the foundation. Jesus built the church. Jesus is building his church. The emphasis is, of course, on the church as a universal entity, the church all around the world, the assemblies of gathered believers. But it certainly does also apply to our work in a local church as a local part of that church universal. Christ builds the church. It's his church. He chooses the foundation. And ultimately, that's what gives us as Christians the assurance that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Because you and I cannot prevail against the gates of hell. We cannot prevail against the attacks of hell. And if you think about it, gates are actually defensive things. You don't attack with your gates, you protect with your gates. But the church of the Christ who conquered sin, death, the devil, and hell will be victorious over sin, death, the devil, and hell precisely because Jesus says, I will build my church. And so we have hope. Verse 19 particularly gives authority to Peter, authority that I believe is designed to match what's already happening in heaven. Jesus says, I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And if the point is truly that the decree of binding and loosing on earth matches what is happening in heaven, that can only be so if Peter's authority is all under the leadership and direction of Christ. And then we go into verse 20. A confusing way to finish this climactic discussion where Peter has made this good confession. Then charged he his disciples that they should tell no man that he was Jesus, the Christ. That strikes us as odd. Because we live after the events and the text of Matthew 28. We've heard Jesus tell 11 of these same disciples go into all the world. 
make disciples of all nations, baptize them and teach them all that I have commanded you. So it's strange for us to then see at this point in time that they're told to tell no one that he was Jesus, the Messiah. I don't think this is about revealing him as Messiah or concealing him as Messiah. I think this has to do with how he is revealed as Messiah. Matthew 16, verses 1 to 4. The Pharisees and Sadducees come to him. They ask for a sign from heaven. They want something definitive that identifies Jesus as indeed the Son of God. And he says, no. He says most succinctly in verse 4, a wicked and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign. And there shall no sign be given unto it, but the sign of the prophet Jonas. And he left them and departed. The way in which Jesus is revealing himself to me, the Messiah, is not through signs that demand belief, that prove beyond any doubt, but by mighty works and words that convey authority that prove beyond a reasonable doubt, but still require faith. The main element in conversion, he doesn't want to be any sort of belief and sign that you couldn't possibly deny. And now he's asking for the same thing as his disciples come out. Reveal subtly. There's also a possibility that Jesus is concerned that too much expectation, too much nationalistic fervor in regard to him being the Messiah would jeopardize his mission in verse 21. To go, die, be raised again. If he's forcibly made king, what continues to happen for his mission? What this primarily means for us is it helps to continue to clarify what it means that Jesus is the Christ. So we could have the expectation that Peter clearly has of it's a just a Psalm 2 setup. He's going to ask of the Lord and immediately get the nations as an inheritance. And so then, with the nations as an inheritance, reign forever physically upon earth. But quite frankly, that wouldn't be good news. The mere statement that Jesus is Christ Messiah, the mere statement that Jesus is King, is the worst possible news we could hear. Because we would be those swallowed up by his wrath. We would be those who would be in Psalm 211, Psalm 211 and 12, swallowed up when his wrath is kindled but a little. We need not just Jesus is king, but Jesus is king, Jesus is Christ who died for us. So that in his identity as the Messiah, we can then be saved.
So we could say with Augustus to Plotty, payment God cannot twice demand. First at my bleeding shirt, he's hand, and then again at mine. Our hope is indeed in his death as Jesus the Christ, the Son of the living God. So we can believe in him, repent of our sin, and have eternal life. So in the midst of different identities and identity crises in, these, in this world, let's remember that the most significant question for identity is whom do you say that Jesus is? Father, I ask again that as we think and meditate upon these words of yours, upon who Jesus is, what Peter has correctly identified and confessed for us, that you would reveal to us your hope, our hope in you. Lord, do a work that only you can do so that we can say, Jesus is the Christ. And may we continue on, regardless of what uncertainty exists in the world, knowing that you have set your king upon your holy hill, and we have taken refuge in him. And so, Lord, I pray, in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to Aroma for Christ, sermons from the pulpit of the Fostoria of Baptist Church. Do you remember 2 Corinthians 2, 15-16? For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? <laughs>